welcome to episode eight of Shishtaf Kishlovsky, The Complete. Um, this is a big episode. We are beginning uh, our first sort of multi-part exploration of what is uh, essentially a unified uh, work of art, but is divided up into 10 separate stories with a couple of uh, extended films uh, stemming off of two of the episodes. Um, so we'll be covering the first two episodes of Decalogue today. Um, I'm Matt Gastire, and uh, I'm here with my fellow traveler through these long, uh, this long experience of delving into one of the great cinematic works of the 1980s, Travis Trudell. How are you doing, Travis? Are you excited? I'm super excited to explore Krzysztof Kieślowski's Polish cinematic universe. <laughs> it's like, this is just like the Marvel universe where everything ties in together and it all crosses over, culminating in one big uh, depressing film. So this is going to be great. I'm excited. It, it, they, they, are, they are pretty dark, although I, I did appreciate the, the light tone of the um, Sam Jackson post-credit sequences on each of these episodes. <laughs> Um, with us uh, for this uh, first part, uh, first of six parts, is uh, our, uh, our good fr friend of the show, Josh Hornbeck. Josh, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, very excited to talk Kieślowski. Josh, you are uh, an, a currently just a honorary member of the uh, 25th Frame Network, but uh, you do have you do have plans to uh, to start a uh, Criterion Channel podcast. How's that coming along? It is uh, in initial preparations, <laughs> and I'm uh, hoping to uh, record uh, a first episode uh, by the end of the month and oh, uh, do it uh, do it monthly to start off with and uh, see how that goes, see if it's a, a sustainable pace. Uh, and uh, really, uh, I'm excited because what I really want to highlight are the, the films that are in the back catalog uh, of the channel, and we'll definitely talk about all of the really incredible bundles and incredible uh, limited engagement films that are coming to the channel but i think it's really easy to overlook some of the the films that criterion has the rights for that'll probably never be released on disc and uh, i'm excited to get into some conversations with people about that definitely that yeah sounds awesome. there's, there's there's a lot of a lot of great stuff in there i mean their their japanese catalog in particular is is filled with uh, an infinite amount of material to discuss and explore. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But there's also some really cool just one-offs from mm -hmm. people uh, nobody's ever heard of. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I know you've been uh, you've been sort of neck deep in uh, Seattle Film Festival uh, going this past couple of weeks. I'm glad you were yeah. able to uh, fit in some time for a little uh, Kieślowski. Yeah, and this actually worked out perfectly. Uh, it's the day that I'm not going in to see anything early, so uh, this is a, a great time to be able to record. I think you probably yes. saw a couple of movies that will be uh, coming to Criterion and maybe the Criterion Channel in the in the in the coming months, uh, if we're lucky, and maybe years. Yeah, uh, some yeah. of the WCP titles that you saw. Yep. Uh, those, I think some some of those are destined for uh, either solo releases or WCP three box so uh, i'm looking forward to those movies yeah yeah there's it seattle always has a lot of great uh what they call archival screenings and uh, i always try to pr 
to uh, preference those. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it's rare that I'm going to get to see something like I Am Cuba on the big screen. Uh, it was it was playing opposite uh, Olivier Assayas' new film, Nonfiction, which I really want to mm. see. But I just thought, you know, I Am Cuba on the big screen is going to be a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And uh, it's it's been great. I got to see Fritz Lang's Spies, mm. uh, his silent film. And again, seeing these films with an audience, uh, getting to experience uh, them in a full house is it's just an experience like no other yeah that sounds pretty pretty awesome that sounds awesome yeah um so but before we uh dive into um decalogue uh i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um just your relationship with kishlovsky how you came to him and uh how that relationship has evolved as you've seen more of his work yeah. You know, I think that uh, Kishlovsky is one of those those filmmakers that it's really easy to take him for granted. Uh, he's He was an introduction to me, uh, for me, to the world of, of real art house cinema. You know, I, I, you know, I think it's funny that you started with Kubrick in your first season and now you're on to Kishlovsky. And I think these were both... Uh, entryways for me into better film uh, at two different times in my life. And I remember trying to watch the Three Colors trilogy back in college when I was just starting to get into film. And I appreciated it, but it didn't connect with me. And it wasn't until a few years later when I was working my way through Roger Ebert's great films list that I really dug into Double Life of Veronique and Three Colors and then into the Decalogue that I really began to resonate with uh, the the work of Kieślowski. And it I just find it really stirring, really moving. I find his ability to overwhelm me with emotion by just a single shot, a single silent uh, image. Uh, I find that really incredible. And so he's a, he's a filmmaker that I uh, have been really, really eager to continue to explore and to continue to, uh, to ruminate on. He's a, he's a filmmaker that I feel like I can keep coming back to and that I can keep getting new things from his work. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Kubrick. Kubrick, uh, of course wrote the, uh, introduction to the published script of, uh, Decalogue, um, when it was, uh, released in the, in the eighties, which is a pretty unusual thing for him to have done. He wasn't, um, one to, uh, lend himself to other, uh, directors works, uh, <laughs> quite so easily. Um, Ingmar Bergman also, uh, mentioned this as, uh, one of the works of the, uh, recent eight of the eighties that he, uh, had the biggest impact on him, um, in an interview he gave in the nineties. So, um, the, I think the three of them go hand in hand to a certain degree and, in, in kind of being entryways for people into yeah. the world of art cinema and thinking about movies in, uh, in a more, uh, more, intellectual fashion which is interesting because i do think one of the reasons why kubrick and bergman appreciated this work and kishlovsky in general so much is because i think all three of them were always sort of focused on crafting a story for the audience that they could connect with and um 
and be entertained by ultimately um, and engaged yeah. with both on an intellectual and emotional level. Um, before uh, before we dive into this uh, first episode of Decalogue, uh, Travis, I was hoping you could do a little bit of setup of how this uh, whole series came to be. Uh, first thing, uh, honesty and truth time. I haven't seen this whole Decalogue mainly out of spite. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, uh, I was also just uh, just like you, Josh. You know, uh, I was introduced to blue in college, and then also by uh, to red by my uh, now wife at that time was a, a, a co-student, and uh, there was a guy in my class that is the embodiment of who we hate on the internet when talking about films. You know, the people <laughs> that we always say like, oh, and we roll our eyes and they just, you know, it's that it's that person that you just, oh, you just want to punch in the face. But you can't because you're having a civil conversation about why his movie is so much better than anything you could ever come up with as an example for films. And uh, I had been looking for the Decalogue because I had heard about the Decalogue and I know... Uh, Kino had put out that nice box set back in the day on DVD. Um, it was the best way to find it. And uh, that son of a bitch found one at a Goodwill for $2, the complete <laughs> collection. And after that, I was like, screw that. I'm not watching that movie. <laughs> that, that kid ruined it for me. All he did was talk about it. Well, in the Decalogue. Oh, God, just shut up. So, for years, <laughs> this movie has sat on like this little shelf next to some other other things that, uh, out of spite, I wasn't going to watch until people stopped talking about them, and uh, and it just did me a disservice. Like anything, like any any person in a Kishlowski film, you realize that uh, you know your emotions and the way you go about seeing life is really just harming yourself and not uh, you know not fixing it for yourself is uh, is the worst thing you can do. So that being said. Here we go, talking about how we, uh, what happened is the creation of these films. Um, so it was like mid-90s, mid-80s, excuse me, and uh, martial law has finally ended. Um, it was, you know, at that time, it was really hard for them to get films made and to, uh, to work under that little bit of freedom that they had prior to the martial law, uh, previous to the martial law. And, uh, but even with martial law ended, it still was a tense time, a lot of uncertainty. No one knew what was going to happen next. I mean, the, the political status in that uh, that country has changed uh, so many times that they no one knows what to expect, but everyone expects something worse coming down the road. And uh, at this point, like, Kishlowski's doing a little bit of traveling. You know, it's a little bit more freedom now. He can see the rest of the world. And he's seeing all around that... Uh, you know, there's just a negativity and there's a directionlessness going on at this point. People aren't really feeling good, feeling good about the world. And uh, when uh, uh, Pisevich comes to him and says, hey, we should do a uh, we should do a film about the Ten Commandments. He kind of just said, no, that's not a good idea. And then after seeing how kind of things are going on around him and around the world, he kind of said, well, maybe we should do something about the Ten Commandments. Maybe we should start talking about uh, morality and about uh, inner lives of people. Um, he started to realize that there was a certain freedom in the censorship because you had a feeling of 
there was a celebrity because you had something to kind of rise against. And with this newfound freedom, it was hard to kind of know what to do. Um, he likened it a lot to a prisoner being in prison. There's a certain mental freedom of being in prison because you don't have to decide what to eat, what to wear, where to go, what to do. You can just think which because uh, you don't have all the daily life, normal, typical things clogging up your brain. And he says that's what it was kind of like under martial law. You didn't have to think about things because you were forced to do this way. And so it really kind of stimulated the creative mind to be able to uh, find of ways to overcome or to think in new, positive, different ways. And so he said there's a lot of creativity that came out during the oppressive times and then with this newfound freedom it became hard to kind of focus on what we should talk about and this also was a time where he realized that he's tired of talking about politics politics changes so quickly and so fast there that it's actually kind of a a non-topic it doesn't affect anything it affects it, it it affects lives and affects things but it doesn't affect people in the way that he wants to affect people so he really wants to focus on inner lives of people and not the external forces that uh, drive them. And so with that idea in mind and that kind of uh, seed germinating in his head because of uh, uh, Pizovich's idea of the Ten Commandments, uh, they started sitting down and writing. They decided to kind of write a film per commandment. Um, effort, you know, it went back and forth on how they were going to present it. And then they also couldn't figure out how to kind of get into the stories they were originally going to just have the camera walking through the streets or through an arena and just pick out one person and then follow them pick up with them um but then the idea of uh setting it out in a uh one of the government buildings uh where people live one of the big uh housing structures as a central place where you have a cross-section of the world of the people of that country and of that society and of that time would be a good uh building block uh, to start the stories out. Um, originally, also, it should be said that uh, he was just going to write them, and the idea was that uh, there was a bunch of new up-and-coming uh, Polish, young Polish directors that, because of the change in state TV, there wasn't a lot of uh, television movies being made anymore. It was all about series um, and cycles, and so his idea was that he would showcase... Uh, 10 directors uh, each one would get their own film but being the person that he is once he started writing it he really started liking it and he didn't want to give it up because he really enjoyed what he was putting down so they began filming the one thing that he did do different to um, offset each story is uh, he chose a different director of photography per story um, which helps give each film a unique look and just to set a different tone so he can uh, feel that way um, about the uh, project and uh, have it dialed into something more visually specific. Uh, and then the last little bit was that he didn't film like one movie at a time. He was doing things like in the morning he was shooting one and in the afternoon he was shooting a part of three and then he was over there shooting a part of five at night and then he was just kind of working it all together as one big film. So when you kind of look at it as uh, individual 10, 10 distinct film, little films, he was uh, filming it with the idea that this was going to be uh, a larger project uh, thematically for him. So by filming it together, he could kind of keep uh, themes and ideas and concepts uh, flowing through and not have them be so isolated from each other. 
And that's about it. That's the story of uh, kind of the beginning. And as we go on through the episodes, we'll talk about more and more little details of production and kind of other thoughts that uh, he had about the filming. But I think that's a good beginning for now. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, you covered all of the big things. I mean, I think that last point that that you made about him shooting multiple episodes uh, at the same time, first of all, obviously underscores the fact that this guy was beginning the uh, just an insane breakneck pace of production uh, for the next uh, six six to seven years of his life, um, where he would make uh, ten episodes of this film, inclu- including two extended ones, uh, Double Life of Veronique and the Three Colors trilogy, all uh, within the span of uh, about seven years. Um, from start to finish. So that, that is a uh, pretty insane output um, and could, could be, you know, the, the, the output of somebody over the course of a full career. Um, and the other thing is just that I think it really underscores the fact that this is a unified piece. These are not 10 short films that are only tangentially connected thematically. Um, and this is really intended to be looked at as one complete work um we are breaking them up simply so that we are able to uh give each episode its proper due in terms of the um thematic and cinematic and uh other uh, intellectual elements of each piece but ultimately um these these are a unified whole and uh you know we could have just as easily done an, a, an episode on the full Decalogue, um, but I think that would have been giving short shrift to each of these uh, episodes. Um, so uh, with with all that stuff in mind, uh, Josh, how do you feel about these, these first two episodes of Decalogue? Yeah, you know, I... I really have a, a deep love for the first episode. Uh, when you asked me to come on for the first two, I was really excited because uh, also the first episode lives on in infamy with my family because I forced my father to watch Oof. it with me and uh, he has never forgiven me and will continue <laughs> to tell me you made me watch a episode of Polish TV. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, <laughs> But it's it's the one that, for me, really helped me see what he was doing with the Decalogue. And uh, uh, I find it so mesmerizing. Uh, the second episode, I had really honestly forgotten about uh, before I rewatched it and dug into it a bit for this episode. And... I, again, find what Kuzlowski's doing here so mesmerizing. And uh, the, the, the moral dilemmas that he places these characters in, I find them so riveting. And uh, it, it really is, you know, like you were saying, Travis, he's, he's abandoned a lot of his political aspirations because he wants to explore what does it mean to be human? Uh, what does it mean to... Uh, to exist in this world and, and how do we relate to each other? How do we, uh, treat each other? Well, what are the, the moral imperatives that are placed on our lives? And, uh, it, both of these films together, uh, were 
absolutely stunning to uh, watch. And, you know, in a, a season where I'm watching 50 films at a film festival, these are still works that stand out and continue to reverberate and, and make me think about them as I'm sitting here waiting for the next festival film to start. Uh, so, uh, yeah, these are these are fantastic films. And episode one especially is a... Uh, I just I find it so incredibly moving. Yeah, episode one really is a uh, is a bit of a gut punch. Uh, yeah, he he lays out uh, he lays out a certain feeling and tone that uh, he's going to explore further throughout the course of the Decalogue, and I think this building you up to break you apart uh, helps you as a viewer. Um, relinquish a lot of the ideas and thoughts that you had going into this film about his previous work and then just letting the films kind of wash over you a bit more um, get away from the intellectual side of it and more into an emotional state which uh, I think at the time you know when he's working his political films that he was kind of stuck in for a little bit um, the political aspects of his films, like when we were talking about No End, uh, those parts are, you know, intellectual thought processes. And this is more of a, this definitely starts you out with those intellectual thought processes and then just strips them away to a moral and emotional uh, uh, way of dealing and seeing uh, the the work that he's pr- uh, producing. And it's... Uh, it really, it really was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting it, but then as soon as, uh, as soon as they mentioned the word ice, I was like, oh, here we go. Every single thing my mom has always told me growing up in Maine, don't go out on that damn lake. Don't do that because the ice, the ice is thin. No matter what you do, what you say, that's always the chance and risk you're willing to take. And for this film to, uh, to put us in that position, that uh, that position of loss, um, you know, it's it it is it's it's really heart wrenching. It really kind of centers you in a moment of uh, doubt and despair, and then allows him to work with you uh, into the next film, which you now have to start making some tough decisions. Uh, your idea of kind of like letting things go and not having to. <clears throat> to think too hard about what's happening, letting the story wash over you. The next one, you know, you go into the second one, and it is about uh, these moral decisions that you have to make, and you're just, you know, you're just witnessing the loss of life in the previous one, and now you have to make a decision whether or not you want to help with a loss of potential life in the next one. So he's really, really putting you through some moral gymnastics in, uh, in these two films. Yeah, I mean the way that that he approaches the the layering of information that he provides to us in each of these movie uh, these episodes is, is very unique um, from each other, and yet um, incredibly masterful in the pacing of w- letting you in on what you know, letting you know what he wants you to know through through each film, um, and I think that this first one which is, I think, the most affecting for me of the entire series, and the, certainly the one that has stayed with me the longest since I first saw the series uh, over a decade ago. Um, 
is you know certainly a gut punch i think but but i think also uh a perfect introduction to the things that uh he wants to explore throughout the rest of the series because it is so straightforward it it's there is a a intellectual underpinning that isn't quite as tied to the type of moral dilemma that you're talking about in the second episode travis um mm-hmm. And I think that allows you to kind of just um, experience the delicate thorniness of uh, morality and your own personal uh, views of spirituality and of um, the questions that we do not have answers to yet um, in a, a very, I think, non-confrontational way and it allows you to uh you know feel confident that you're putting yourself in this person's hands for another nine hours um and so i think it it was a very uh smart first film even if you uh don't uh, you know uh, immediately need to associate it with the first commandment like it's it's not it's not a necessarily a direct uh, link, although I think possibly this film and and maybe Killing are the two that I think have the most obvious direct links to uh, to specific commandments. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to to link this this movie to that that commandment. I think it's still, um, in some ways, I think it's a more interesting film if you don't do that. Um, but th- I think that may be just spoken like a true atheist. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But, um, but I, th- I think the first thing I want to talk about just is, is, uh, these two central characters here of, uh, Shishtof and Pavel. Um, they, uh, the, it's a, a, a dad and, and a son and the, uh, the dad is a professor. Um, it seems like probably a philosophy of some kind i would say um and uh although it could be it could be math did you guys get a sense that there was like a specific i, f- I felt it was linguistics of some yeah, yeah rhetoric or something along those yeah, lines yeah, yeah. yeah um and so his son is uh sort of uh wise beyond his years uh he um beats a, a chess chess master uh, at one point and uh, is able to program the computer to control aspects of the house um, and and pretty much just hangs on every word uh, of his father, which um, ends up um, ending in, in a unspeakable tragedy um, by the end of the film. Um, but what did you guys uh, think of this, the relationship between these two and sort of the the absence of the mother and how that kind of informed their dynamic josh yeah you know on the one hand i think their their relationship is really lovely the father is incredibly encouraging of the son uh the father's uh, the very beginning, the son rushes in and asks, "Give me a problem, quick! Give me a problem. I want to, yeah. I want to plug something into the computer." And the father humors him. Uh, the 
when they're playing chess, it's the father that's playing chess and it's the son that's like, oh, why don't you try this and try this? And the the father does what his son suggests. There's a sense of him really encouraging his son's intellectual curiosity. Hmm. Um, and, and I find that really, really lovely. But uh, the there is that sense that the father is so sure of himself and is has placed so much confidence in his own intellect in his own um, ability to uh, use computers and use tools and use uh, technology to solve any problem that he could possibly solve and uh, and that really does become the the downfall there and uh, the son trusts implicitly that his father is is wise and that his father knows what he's he's doing as well and and yet you get the sense that dad is he he pays a little too much attention to the flattery of his female students he he goes off in the middle of the night at times and there are these all these unspoken uh, things that we're left to speculate on uh, that that show the the cracks uh, in this this relationship uh, that maybe it isn't quite as solid as we're led to believe. I find that uh, interesting because I do think there is a sort of roommate vibe to their relationship yeah. uh, frequently, and there is kind of this sense of like this guy sort of takes his son for granted as like, as more of a, a peer interaction. Um, and so those, that aspect of it is kind of interesting because he, it almost becomes a situation where if you think about the, uh, you know, you should have no gods before me, I think most people immediately go to the idea of uh, this guy not not believing in God. But in a sense, the, the, the dad has positioned himself as such this powerful figure in their relationship that the son looks up to him in, you know, this, this, uh, De- as this kind of deity that you know yeah. this all-knowing uh, uh being uh who he lives with and so it's like the dad is treating him like a peer or like a friend uh, but that that relationship is uh, you know that that's never a healthy relationship for uh, a parent and child because the child is unable to see a parent as a peer. And so he, even he, he's being treated like a peer and yet he's not able to, to function in that way. Uh, and so he looks up to him and I think the, the juxtaposition or the, the, the cross wiring of those two uh, approaches to their relationship is part of the downfall, um, by the end of the film because uh, he's he has this sort of implicit trust of his son but his son is ultimately just a child who's going to listen to what he tells him yeah uh-huh. and you know it, it it's reinforced in the scene where uh, Pavel 
attends uh, his father's class and we see the that shot from Pavel's perspective and it really is he is looking up at his father yeah. and his father is in this place of um veneration really uh on screen and uh yeah that's a really a really great read on that yeah that is uh i was that was one of the parts i was going to mention was uh is it the father's worship of science over uh, God, which is the links, the commandment or the son uh, implicitly, implicitly just uh, putting his father's knowledge above all else and trusting, uh, blindly trusting him. But I didn't, I guess I never saw their relationship in that light that the two of you have brought up. Um, I saw it as f- like, it's that rare uh, just, the father is respectful of the son because he recognizes that he isn't he doesn't need to have like his childish aspects are prevalent he does enjoy and 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 have joy in his life in terms of his childish things but at the same time he respects his son to do kind of like be his own person i i don't i guess i didn't see it as kind of like you know, the letting his boy just kind of go off on his own is is a sign of you're intelligent and you can do your own thing and keep to your own and keep to your own ways. Um, I never saw it as because he does he does have that parenting aspect of coddling when you know he comes in, checks to make sure he has his elephant, and you know says good night to him and. He's answering those hard questions, but he's respecting his son's intelligence by answering them truthfully as opposed to uh, sugarcoating or kind of mollycoddling him a bit. Um, I don't know. I didn't I guess I didn't read it that way. So that's why when when Josh finished with the cracks, I was kind of like the cracks in their relationship. It took me by surprise. because I had to sit there and think for a second going. Really? Um, uh, let me let me go back through my through that through my head and see where see what uh, uh gaining a persp- that new perspective. So, well, I think pause, I think it's, the I, mean, I, I, I don't intend to um to imply that um, you know I think I think the depiction of him is is of a a, a good and loving father. Um, so I definitely don't intend to uh, imply that his attitude towards his son is uh necessarily detrimental um and and the other thing probably is that we are partially looking at this through the 21st century american parenting goggles Mm. and so letting your kid go off to play in 1980s poland was probably an extremely normal and typical thing uh to do so I wouldn't expect him to uh, to be displaying any sort of helicopter parenting uh, to any by any stretch of the imagination, um, and 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 the other thing is just that like I mean what one of the things I think that's so appealing about this episode and the the next one that we're going to talk about is that there is a, a real complexity to uh, the relationships and to the moral and ethical choices that these characters make. Um, that doesn't allow for super easy answers or characterizations of each of these people. Um, because ultimately, you know, to cast this guy's, um, attitude entirely in the light of he believes in science, he's overly confident. He doesn't think, you know, he, 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 he blindly follows, uh, the computer, 
um, isn't really fair. And there are many examples throughout the film, but I think the most important one is that he does go and check the ice uh, himself. He doesn't rely mm -hmm. entirely on his calculation. Um, so that you know, it's. I don't think it's an. an in, I don't think that it's intended as a uh, damning of his uh, ignorance by way of intellectualism. Um, I think it's a much more complicated picture that's presented. So I, I, I think, you know, I think there's there's equal merit in both sides of this uh, perception of the relationship. Well, and I think that both both sides can be can be true at the same time, and I think that's one of the things that I find so uh, alluring about Kieślowski's films is that he's willing to deal with the complexities and the nuances of human interaction and of relationships, and uh, that it it never does it can never really be reduced into easy answers. And uh, my wife sat down and watched the first chapter with me uh, this time. And we both remarked on how much this felt like an incredible short story, just a perfectly mm -hmm. crafted piece of literature that film doesn't always capture some of those, those, those nuances uh, as well as, um, as literature can. And this is, this is an absolutely riveting uh, example of that, that, that we can, we can really see uh, the, the contradictions even within his own, his own character. And uh, yeah, I, I, I find their relationship to be one of the most beautiful things in the film, but also one of the most heartbreaking things at the same time. No, for sure. And I, I didn't, I didn't, I hope I didn't, uh, like... Oh, no, no, yeah. yeah no, not yeah, at all, no. yeah. <laughs> no, no, I didn't, yeah. I didn't mean for that to come off like I'm, I disagree with your opinions. It was just, it was it was enlightening. Like, it was uh, here seeing a different, like, like every time we talk about these films uh, with groups and every together, I love seeing other people's opinion in and out. It just took me a second to uh, adjust my lens to that, going, huh, okay, let me look at it like that. And so I was uh, a little dumbfounded for a second because I was uh, processing. Uh, but no, uh, I think uh, talking about their relationship in, in, in the way, it, yes, there are some very, uh, uh, that scene where he comes to school and he's literally, and he's, and the, the, the important part is not only does he just come to school to watch his dad lecture, he is, uh, his dad has, made the decision to take him to school instead of letting uh, his sister, uh, Pavel's aunt, Irene Arena, uh, take him to church. Uh, he says, no, 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 the boy's coming with me tomorrow. Uh, we're going to, he's coming to my lecture, I need him there. And really, he doesn't. It's a, you know, it's that push and pull. Well, the, the character we haven't mentioned yet is, uh, is uh, not only is uh, Pavel being raised by his fuck, his single father, uh, he's also being raised by his uh, aunt, who is a, a very devout uh, Catholic and, uh, you know, is also kind of helping him uh, with some of his spiritual questions, uh, mor moral questions uh, that uh, Pavel has uh, while his father is working uh, purely from a scientific, uh, scientific uh, stance in uh, answering uh, any of Pavel's questions or ideas and uh the she's she's a part of that and 
So for him to say, I'm taking you to school with me and not to church, you know, he's making a he's making a distinction of what he focuses on and what he wants him to focus on, uh, which is also. But at the same time, when the sister says, uh, I'm going to sign him up for Sunday school. And he says, well, whatever the boy thinks he needs. And so he's also allowing him to kind of yeah. still be a part of that, which is and that's what I find like this. It's not cut and dry. It's not an yeah. easy. It's not easy at all. There's. There's layers. Everyone is human in this film. There's no, uh, you know, with the exception of uh, the Watcher. Um, <laughs> well, I was who, just yeah. about to say. I mean, I, uh, I think a good way into Irena is the is the opening of this film. I mean, there's a lot of questions I have about it, um, but it does it introduces one of the uh, one of the only recurring characters in in the series which is the uh, the angel of fate or the watcher um, who is uh, is was it Darek uh, from no end um, the uh, yes. the jailed uh, uh, husband uh, from Kishlovsky's previous film um, and uh, who, who like his his character in this uh, episode kind of reminds me of the homeless guy behind the diner in Mul- in uh, Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Except less terrifying. Yes, a little bit less terrifying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but I mean, there's a lot there. Um, it, it does definitely remind me a lot of the opening of No End and and of uh, Blind Chance. It's a little disorienting and. Um, impressionistic as opposed to uh the subsequent sequence in which the bird uh lands on the windowsill in order to establish the setting establish the randomness of uh the these story these specific stories being told and to introduce us to one of our central characters for the episode this opening is a lot more uh unmoored from the narrative until uh, later in the episode when we find out what what uh, these were corresponding to. Um, what do you guys think of uh, this structure? Does it feel like uh, is this a flashback? Uh, is, does this whole episode take place in a flashback? And and I think also, what do you guys make of the um, the the images on the TV? If we want to really 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 dissect the structure i think it probably is technically a flashback but there is something that it just it sets such a mournful tone for the rest of the episode uh it i i just don't know how kishlovsky could have opened it any other way and made this film really work in as all of one piece and um that that opening shot of the watcher of the the angel of fate just sitting there looking into the camera and cutting back and forth between he and arena as she's looking at footage of the students running through the hallways and pavel uh kind of the 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 ways in which the the news footage that she's watching through the window slows down uh there's something very haunting and very uh, almost surreal about these opening sequences that again it, it feels like it's more about setting an emotional tone than even um, setting us up for what's to come it's it's this real uh, this real deep 
sense of we're, we're left with this deep sense of loss um, in both uh, arena crying over the, the images she sees and the, the watcher looking at us directly in the camera and crying. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, I, I do think it's, yeah, technically a flashback, but more than anything, it's, it's really about setting the mood and setting the tone. Yeah, I mean, with the between between the images that were presented and the music that is presented as well, I mean, yeah. Chrysler's you know score in that it does set a tone of just uh, loss and sadness, and then where then we start the film, you know, now let's see what what happens, why we get to this moment, and it is brutal and tragic. What were you at all? Were you at all reminded of? Um the horses and the calm from yeah from i mean i was gonna say that we've had a few movies now where he's opened up with imagery and then led us into the story uh no end he had you know we had that we had uh uh was it not blind chance but uh yeah, yeah blind yeah. chance the, the blind his chance. childhood memories yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that was yeah i mean and that's i think it's nice because it does it sets a tone like what he's doing with the imagery is visually setting a tone for you and then starting with the with the narrative which i think is very important it's uh you know both uh, sonically with the with the audio uh with the music and then also visually with the uh with the imagery oh, yeah, and you the know, hawk just... and the hawk from uh camera buff uh yeah camera mm-hmm. buff there we go yeah, yeah no it's a uh, He's, I think, yeah, it's part of his, I think at this point, part a bit of his style and his kind of, he's realized that that kind of helps get people in the mindset and, and goes into what you were talking about earlier, Matt, with his connection with the audience and wanting to connect. And nothing connects you more than breaking that fourth wall and having, uh, having someone just crying and looking at you. And then we see what they're looking at, uh, you know, a hole in the ice. And then also uh, we're looking at her looking at, uh, children playing in that freeze frame and the way that it is presented it is ghostly and haunting and kind of has that nostalgia to it that automatically comes with an image being played back and slowed down and frozen for you um, you know it's a it's yeah. a shorthand visual shorthand that we've come accustomed to uh, but then you know we cut right to uh, pure joy Pavel seeing a bird alight on his window as he's looking outside and he's happy and then he goes running to talk to his dad and ask for a problem and we're now into this complete different tonal shift and making that visual connection between the sadness and the watching to him watching and the bird has blood on its wing which is also mm-hmm. kind of weird and mm-hmm. but is not explained and not really kind of thought about it's but it's you know subconsciously it's there that there's something there's joy here, but there's also sadness tinged within that joy, and uh, it's it's a beautiful opening. It, it his uh, his grasp over narrative structure and over visual uh, visual structure of his films at this point. I mean, we've we you know we've watched all his feature films, all of his documentaries at this point. Um, it is so strong here and it only gets stronger as, as it progresses. And I think that's, uh, uh, it's, I'm having a hard time putting into words my feelings about this episode because it is just, it is, it is, uh, it takes your breath away in terms of, uh, just how masterful he has become in what he's, uh, his intentions. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, 
directions as as the steerer the ostensible steerer of this conversation there's a lot of directions that i'm excited to go in here but it's it's difficult to think about this in a linear fashion because each of these elements is so deeply woven into the tapestry of the episode that they don't really uh separate themselves um you know i'm thinking specifically of the um the way that two i think really uh consistently recurring uh things oh it's really three actually recurring things in the film uh combined together um glass ice and milk uh come mm-hmm. up very frequently um and and in one uh in one sequence l- literally combine in the frozen uh bottle of milk um yeah. but but these things uh come up so frequently throughout the episode whether it, uh, you know with the, with the ice whether it's the the pond freezing the uh, the final moment of the holy water uh, being turned into ice and, and uh, he uh, attempts to use it at the end of the episode, um, the frozen milk. Um, and then just the, the, the way that glass is used, even at that beginning, um, you know, the, the uh, Irena is looking through glass to the computer, uh, to the TV, which is of course also made of glass and, um, F for a story that it's frozen, um, you know, recalling the ice and, and for a story about uh, a milk program at the school. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's so dense. I mean, she's looking through a glass, looking at a dark hole in which there is a boy frozen. He's looking at a, gla- yeah. he's looking at ice through a dark hole where there's a boy frozen. It's, 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 uh, it's phenomenal in terms of, uh, how well thought out and how well structured this is, uh, I mean, in the threads, like you're talking about, Matt, like you could just pick one thread, follow it through to its uh, to its likely conclusion, but it touches upon all the other parts yeah. into this, you know, masterful tapestry that he's he's put together. I mean, Irena, like we haven't talked much about Irena. Like, I mean, she's there as a, as the maternal figure in his life. You know, uh, the mother is gone, but not gone, gone has left, and you know, there's a uh, hints and clues as to the fact that she's gone stateside she's in the u.s and she might have another family at this point and pavel is trying to use uh logic and science in the computer to kind of figure out what his mom is doing like he doesn't understand why she has left so we'll use science to explain this you know being very much like his father let's use logic to explain this problem away yeah and then when you know the mom when uh his aunt uh says well maybe science isn't the answer maybe we need to start thinking in terms of spiritual things like the soul and think about what she's dreaming about which is about you because if you don't have the logical answer to that you can always put in your own uh you know your own ideas of of what what is happening you can use your imagination which is that idea that well it doesn't know what she's dreaming well obviously she's dreaming about you because that's what you want that's what you hope for that's what you desire so let's you know let's uh figure out how to kind of start talking about the spiritual side of things and how you have these desires and these wants these hopes these dreams that you can uh, seek a higher form a higher higher 
power to kind of help you guide you in helping you achieve these things or think about these things or contemplate these things. I did, I spent nine years in Catholic school. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I have fallen very far away from that in my life, uh, just due to my own, you know, my own things. But I do understand the, the power of that, uh, that concept, that idea of spirituality as a as a means to helping lift and raise your spirits and to help give purpose to uh, yourself and your goals and your and your ideas and her injecting that into his life is very uh, very much needed without his mom being there um, and having only his father who is you know providing that that very strong base for him to grow and be free to be an individual and to be himself um it also still is not instilling upon him that uh that uh imaginative side and that kind of other half of the you know the yang to his ying uh which the uh, aunt is uh providing very uh or trying to provide a little more nourishment for his soul in the form of food and the form of uh these types of conversations which uh I think is also, you know, just as important as everything else in this film. It's it's so hard to break apart these things into without talking about how they relate to everything. It's 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 yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I think the uh I think the absence of the mother is is the key to this episode for me. Um I think this movie, I think this this episode in particular is about mothers to a certain degree. I mean, it comes up so frequently and both literally the the absent mother, Irena um, being the sort of surrogate mother to him, uh, all of the milk uh, thematic elements um, being folded into it. You could argue that um, he, he's breaking uh, the water, his water, <laughs> the water breaks as he falls into the ice. Um, but I think um, finally the, the image of the Virgin Mary crying in the church at the yeah. end um, sort of ties these thematic elements all together. Um, in Poland, uh, in Polish uh, Catholic uh, tradition, the Virgin Mary is uh, sort of the central figure of uh, the faith. And um, I think using her here was uh, very intentional in terms of uh, looking at the the thing, the elements that are missing in this uh, relationship and in their worldview. Um, and I think by incorporating those thematic elements, Kieślowski is moving further, ironically somewhat by incorporating the Virgin Mary, moving further away from uh, pinning this down specifically as an investigation of faith and of Christianity um, and making it a lot more about uh, morality and, and, and sort of internal uh, belief systems and and what you kind of need to be a human being i think ultimately what do you think of that josh yeah that's that's a lot to chew on there um yeah i i as i investigate as we we think about arena and uh something that i really appreciate about the way kishlovsky uh approaches these these characters these two parental figures in Pavel's life is that they both have pieces 
of of answers for him. They both uh, they both have um, uh, really really rich and important things to impart uh, to Pavel's life. Uh, uh, Travis, you're bringing up the the sequence by the computer where Pavel has programmed in all of these equations so that he knows exactly what his mother is doing at any point in time uh, is is this this child attempting to connect with the absent mother and and her her question to him of well is she what what is she dreaming about uh, I found Pavel's the the crestfallen uh, child there just I found that so heartbreaking that he had he had programmed in all of these intellectual things that he's been given from his dad but he hadn't contemplated some of the deeper human aspects of it as well um uh I find that so moving and so heartbreaking and the idea that that he needs he needs this other aspect to himself in order to be really fully human that we have to embrace the mystery mm, yeah. of life um as well as the the rationality that we get through the sciences and through our intellect and that both of those things have to have to exist side by side uh and uh yeah, the, uh, there's there's so much that we've that, that we've talked about that my mind is racing right now. Uh, <laughs> no, I think and, I think your your point about the, the yeah. embrace of the mystery again. Just think about the way that that uh, that that example of you know what what is my mom dreaming about is tied to both the embrace of the the mystery of spirituality and of religion yeah. and of faith. But also the mystery of his mother, the fact that yeah. he doesn't know this person and he doesn't truly, you know, understand who she is as a as a human being. And I think mm -hmm. the fact that he was able to incorporate those two things so in such with such fluidity is is pretty astonishing. Yeah, and and I just I have to say that as we're talking about it more and more, I am so incredibly blown away by how much of a progression Kislowski has made from no end to this mm -hmm. that that he is so expertly weaving in the symbolism and the narrative threads and the character beats uh, and like you were saying this this tapestry is just so rich and uh, the honestly the leap forward is monumental and uh i'm just i'm blown away by what he was able to do here i really think his embrace of just removing all political aspects like just totally getting away from that 100 uh you know not trying to you know set it so this is a truly polish story anymore you know we've talked about in the past films like this is interesting because it really sheds a light on what was going on in Poland, or this is really interesting because it's inherently Polish in its nature and in its culture, and this is not inherently Polish at all. This yeah, can be set yeah. in any place, in any time, with any group of people, and it still has its its strong themes of uh, man and man versus nature, or you know, science versus spirituality, and it has those loss and and family. It's it's uh it's truly you know it is a un it is a universal he's moved so far away from that that it has just completely freed him 
to be able to be uh, truly about the inner inner workings of humanity and being uh, as human as possible in terms of conveying the story. I mean, we go from uh, Pavel just walking to school and he's walking through a field with in the distance uh, this church being constructed. The whole concept of a uh, incomplete church, this incomplete faith, this incomplete person yeah. who doesn't yeah. have, uh, you know, uh, a full stru- a full, you know, that that in alone. I mean, <laughs> there's so many symbols, so many pieces that uh, just make this story so much richer and then there's i mean we haven't even talked about the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor yeah. of this film which mm-hmm. is is his huge as well like if you read if you read the scripts like this didn't take place in winter this took place in fall uh it was an autumn story which you know turning it into winter helped uh you know make it colder make it harsher make it harder to comprehend the fact that there was an answer for why the ice broke. Yeah, um, that was what I was going to bring up next, actually. Um, go for it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, w- well, I guess, what I, I guess I'll just straight up ask, like, what do you guys think of that decision to to leave that out? And the the other thing I'll add here is that I have seen people sort of assume that the fire um, that the the angel of fate is sitting uh, behind. Um, was what melted the ice can, I, um, I, can we all agree that that's silly. not true no, that's, yeah. that's 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 silly. not true okay. yeah good that's silly okay i've, so, I've, I've been to bonfires on yeah. a frozen lake and right. it hasn't made the ice yeah break. it was a pretty small <laughs> fire it was not a, yeah. it was not a rager um okay so let's let's just put that aside for now there is no definitive answer or even i think hinted at answer of why the ice breaks in the film um, so since I interrupted you, Travis, I'll start with you first. What do you, what do you think of that decision to, to remove that? Basically the answer that was provided in the script was that there was, uh, it, it was a generator, I believe that releases that released warm water into the lake and it melted the ice. And so it wasn't as sturdy as it otherwise would have been, um, which has been completely excised from the, the film. And I, I think actually it was never actually filmed. I think he changed it during the process. But what, what do you think of that removal? Does it make the, the, the nature of the accident more or less satisfying to you? For me, it makes it more satisfying because we're talking about you know, if we're continuing with his themes, it's the randomness and chance and the uncertainty of things that cause a life to be short or fleeting, which makes what we're doing in life more fulfilling if we, you know, you know, if we participate fully. Um, I find I find that as a satisfying having it not explained to me. Um I can see if you were to flip the coin and come from a purely, you you know, if you are taking the atheist point of view, the scientific point of view, uh, there is an answer and it was there. And by choosing to remove it, you're doing a disservice to the other side of the coin because then you are making it about the Old Testament God punishing those who don't do what he says, um, which can be very frustrating for someone of... You know, I think I read recently someone posting about just how this one is the most frustrating of his films because there was an answer, and by not giving it, you just support the other this other side of this uh, the spiritual scientific debate that you know for someone who 
does not embrace the spiritual side at all by by taking away that answer you're now not giving you know the full story which then leads you to put more you know like the father going to the church and now relinquishing right. his his stance to embrace uh Christ, you know catholicism or christianity uh, you know by anointing himself uh with that whole by baptizing himself with that holy water, whether he, he, I think he was baptized. I think the sister says they were both raised together Catholic, yeah. and then the father at some point decided counting and numbers were more important because then he could figure out things. Um, so by going back and, and you know, uh, basically re- relenting, uh, re- relinquishing his grasp on knowing things and uh, knowing the now that he knows nothing. And so he can, he, he's, he, you know, fully embraces or, you know, at this moment of crisis goes back to, uh, the church, which a lot of people do moments of crisis, moments of crisis of faith, moral conundrum, uh, conundrums. Uh, a lot of people do, uh, uh, seek help, uh, from a higher power and go and go to church and, or whatever spiritual way that you go approach that thing, uh, is, uh, people do do that, and so by not having that answer be there, it allows him. It allows that embrace of the mystery and wanting to uh, seek a higher power. It allows that story to be uh, better served. Because honestly, if this dad who has science and is all about numbers has that information, has those facts that oh, it was this is what caused this problem. So I'm not wrong. The ice was fine. My son wasn't wrong. It was it was the government. It was politics that ruined this. Um, it kind of it kind of deflates his uh, move to going to the church and, you know, being upset, kicking the kicking down the altar, but then embracing uh, embracing that uh, spiritual side that he's uh, lost out on. So me personally, I like it how it is without that answer, but I can I can definitely see the argument on the other side for people who just like, you know, just want you know want the answer to be the truth. Yeah, you know, I I totally I think it would have ruined the film, honestly, to have given the answer. Uh, I I think that there is this. Um, uh, there's this belief in a lot of, especially, I'm going to just say a lot of, especially very, uh, in men who really pride themselves on their intellectual capacity. Mm. I think it, there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, men who, who treat their intellect as, uh, a, as their way of, of, uh, being masculine and their way of, of, proving that they're they're men and and i think that there's that sense of well if i just had one more figure if i just had one more number if i just had one more uh calculation i would know everything there is to know about the universe and about um uh about why the ice broke or about you know if 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 he would have just entered in one more figure he would have known for sure that it wasn't going to hold uh and so to me it 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 Kieslowski is so interested in mystery and whether whether we want to believe that the father has embraced faith or has has turned to God or whether it's just him confronting his own 
insufficiencies and and realizing that he doesn't have all of the answers i just i think that adding giving a, a definitive answer as to why the ice broke would have um would have allowed the father to take the easy way out in some ways he could mm-hmm. have he could have easily then said okay well it, it wasn't my fault it was it was something else entirely and or or you know, maybe maybe even taking uh, even more more on himself, saying, "Oh, I should have thought about this extra computation, and why didn't I think about this?" So I think there could be some rich things there. But but Kieslowski is interested in getting us to confront the mystery of life, um, whether that's a spiritual mystery or a religious mystery, or just the the very the fact that that human existence can't be reduced to numbers and can't be reduced to figures and equations that um, I, I think that that there is that um, there's that need a lot of times for for people to to try to solve things and have all of these these simple simplistic answers uh, reduced. Uh, and I think that you can see that on both the, the spiritual religious side as well as the intellectual side. And mm-hmm. I think that there is something so profound and so incredibly um, rich when you live in that uncertainty between the two. And I think that that's, that's what Kieslowski is going for here. And it, uh, it makes this such a rewarding film. And uh, again, something to continue to ponder uh, long after you see it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't think that. I mean, I think that he could have just as easily discovered that that was the case and still turned to the church in that moment. Um, yeah, you know, because it's just it's it's obviously it's such a brutal loss, um, and knowing that your miscalculations were responsible, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't really matter if you find out what that was or not. Um, you know, and and there's no indication in his turning to the church that this was God's doing. You know that God yeah. killed this yeah. child because he only liked science. Um, so it is a deeper, richer mystery than um, it might that might imply. Um, and in a way, I mean, I, I don't think that Kieślowski intended this. Um, he does get to have his cake and eat it too a little bit by providing this answer in the in the published screenplay Mm. um you know we know that he's basically saying look there was there are logical explanations as to why this could have happened that are not uh, tied up in god or religion um and in fact uh is this could have just been a bad calculation because he wasn't able to explain one specific variable. And yet we have the film as primary text to, um, that, that allows us to have more of a mystery as to what really happened. Um, so we do get to look at it from both perspectives and not have it immediately, um, wrapped up in one direction or another. So I don't necessarily agree with my fellow atheists and agnostics who uh, would say that uh, the movie uh, by eliminating that, that um, explanation pushes it into the direction of faith. Um, And I think part of the reason that I don't agree with that is because I ultimately don't think in any of these films that Kieślowski is primarily concerned with religion um, to any large degree. 
And so it's hard for me to believe that he would open the series with uh, one of, if you, if you do believe that, that the, the episode is pushing strong too strongly in that direction with essentially, you know, God's worst act in the, in the, in the sea, in the series uh, to open with that um, just doesn't, it doesn't read to me. I think, yeah. And I think the, the, the you know the moralistic uh, mistake that the father makes is the not believing that he could have been wrong and going through five different steps of trying to solve where his son is before going to the final conclusion that he's yeah. the one in the end. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there was a moment where him just jump, you know, hearing that the ice is broken, automatically jumping to his son and going there would have solved anything for him or helped, you know, save the son's life or something. Uh, that isn't made clear, but the fact that we see the ambulance going towards the river or the the fire truck, and he knows that the ice is broken, and he does he just willfully ignores that he knows his son knows is going to go on that ice, and all he doesn't make that connection or willfully ignores that connection, and steps through all the logical steps of where his son could possibly be before going back to that. I and I think that you know we've talked about the fact that that. You know, I don't. I don't know that the film is condemning his intellectualism throughout, mm. but I think this is the point where uh, his his reliance on his own um, logic processes fails yeah. him. And this is this is where you know you. I still am struck by that moment when he is about to rush up the stairs to um, to see if his son is home, and then he stops himself. Yeah, counts to ten, and then yeah. takes the elevator. And <laughs> and that to me is is again him. That's that's where his 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 reliance on his own intellect, um, where we really see see how much it unravels him and how much it undoes him. Um, and then the the very simple shot uh, when he's standing by the ice. And he remains standing as they're pulling out the children and the entire crowd falls to the, the ground, falls mm. to their knees. Uh, it's, it's a simple image, but it, it moved me to tears this time. Just mm. how, so... how powerful it is and how, how broken he is in that one moment. Yeah, it is so strong. And because, you know, it's, 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 you know, once again, you know, Kishlovsky is, is just a... Uh, weaving in all these little little moments that help us as the audience also understand that there are mysteries that are unsolvable um yeah the whole ink pot just breaking no reason yeah. no rhyme no reason there's nothing no external force there's nothing that he has planned all of a sudden there at that moment which i assume in the timeline of how the events that are occurring at the same moment as his son is breaking through the ice the ink pot on his desk is broken and ink slowly kind of stains leaving almost like a black hole in a white field much like the uh the black hole in the ice yeah. um and he is left kind of just cleaning that up without you know without thinking about the uh, why this has occurred or what has happened. He just is angry that it has happened and he's cleaning the ink off his hands and just trying to clean up the mess. And <clears throat> it's such a, you know, it's such a nice little 
character piece that you know this is how he he reacts to this accident a little bit of anger a little bit of i don't understand but he doesn't dig into like why why this happened he he doesn't like and that's the thing like when his son passes when his son dies he doesn't ask why as well he doesn't chase down those answers he turns to something he turns to back to uh, god and i th- i find that that that's a compelling enough reason there for not having the water uh the explanation of the water warmth but he also the other moment that we haven't talked about is he looks for that stranger again and the stranger's not there by the ice the watcher um you know which is he noticed that he was there the night that he went to test the ice he's sitting there watching and waiting and then now that this accident has occurred the uh you know the angel of fate or the watcher whatever you want to call him the witness uh, is no longer there, and he's he notices that. Um, I don't know what that says about what's going on, but the fact that he notices that that person isn't there anymore uh, also gives us the audience this idea that this person, this watcher person, is more of a uh, some, a greater power, uh, something something more than just a character, a hobo sitting by the ice that we might have initially thought he was. The rhythm of the um, the developments. Uh as he realizes that the that there's something wrong is is uh very musical and specific and mm-hmm. it, it, it to me that sequence with the ink um the the ambulance the phone rings immediately it's that that sequence has uh the a richer subtext of spirituality than the final sequence uh, in the church which is ultimately just about despair and and Mm-hmm. you know, uh, desperation. Um, there, there is a, a real, um, inevitability to the progression of how everything has been constructed in that sequence. Uh, anyone want to talk about or, uh, venture to guess, uh, why that mother and the father who found their boy Yasek, uh, are so unwilling yeah. to pause for a second to let the father ask the question of his, as he's seen his son, like what, 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 so... yeah. what are they, what does he need to get home for? Are they, are they missing their favorite show or something? Yeah. Or, it was you know, very that, odd. it was very odd. Like, cause you know, it's almost like she was, she had mother's intuition. As soon as she saw the, you know, heard the fire alarm, she was running down the stairs without a coat yelling for her son. And it, it, I don't know if he was trying to juxtapose like the how not having the mom in the life is another, you know, are men, uh, men of science, men of uh, are not uh, dialed into the, you know, that connection between, uh, you know, mothers and children that, you know, uh, that 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 uh, invisible connection that moms that intuition that moms have when their sons are in trouble or their daughters are in trouble and you know, is, is he trying to point that out? But then at the, you know, the reverse, you know, what is she trying to shield him from that, you know, asking those questions? And the boy is, very, you know, the fact that he hold, grips onto it to escape his mom for a second to say, he wasn't playing with us. Like, he knows why he's there. Everyone knows what he's looking for, but no one's willing to, you know, to say it out loud. And the, the boy is willing to, like, say it. And the little kid is willing to point out that they're there. The little girl, he's not here. He was supposed to meet me. Hey, he wasn't, he, like, it's all these children are willing to speak up and say what, what everyone's thinking. And all these adults are trying to hide behind kind of uh, propriety and and uh, uh, not, as em- not as emotionally connected to their, uh, 
not as strongly connected to their emotions as the children are at that moment. I don't know. It's that's just something I've been thinking about since that scene. I I wonder if some of what's going on there is um, that irrational fear that creeps in when uh, something terrible happens to a neighbor. Uh, the 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 fear that they could be you, and the fear that that irrational fear that it's contagious. That uh, you know we know we we're we're pretty sure that it's your son under the ice. Don't talk to us. Don't talk to our son. We don't want the same thing ha- to happen to us. Mm. Um, I, I I don't know that it's any you know I don't know that it's anything more than than subtext and anything more than uh, just that that desperation that uh, that one must feel as a parent in trying to shield their children from the the brutality of the world. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's something there. Uh, I hadn't actually thought much about that until you, you asked the question, Travis. Are we, uh, are we ready to move on to episode two or did you guys have any final thoughts on this first installment? It, this is a, uh, this is a fantastic beginning to this series. Uh, yeah, I nothing nothing more than what we've talked about. I think we could talk about this one episode for another two hours yeah. if we really wanted to. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> I think I think it's a good segue talking about that mom and the connection to uh, to uh, their children going into the episode, the next episode. Yeah, so this is a, a I think a different uh, type of experience. Um, and I think um, I think it's immediately apparent uh, the uh, effect that the different cinematographers are having on the feel of uh, these two yeah. episodes, um, and and I think the the pacing and structure of this episode is also very different from the first. Um, so the, the Decalogue Two is is uh, about a woman, uh, Deroda, and. Uh, a doctor who goes unnamed, but is played by Alexander Bardini, who was the lawyer in No End. And uh, it's about uh, a uh, her husband who is uh, being treated by the doctor uh, for, uh, I assume, a, a cancer. They don't say the specific uh, illness that he has. Uh, I think um, it's not mountain climbers, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's yeah it's uh it it's vague um and uh he she she wants an answer from the doctor about whether or not um he's going to make it and we don't find out the reason for that until about a third of the way into the episode when it's revealed that she is pregnant with another man's baby and that she wants to keep the baby because she had previously thought that she was infertile and unable to have children um, and so this is her last chance, uh, to have a baby, but if her husband survives, she doesn't want to deal with the fallout from having another man's child, uh, brought up, uh, or, or having the truth come out either way. Um, so she wants to know if she should get an abortion and uh, avoid the, the potential, uh, fallout from, from her husband finding out. The, this is a pretty different story, I think, than the first one. And these characters are very different. Uh, these are two very lonely people uh, who have uh, 
it's it's interesting because this is a woman who is uh, romantically involved with two men who she says that she loves equally but for different reasons but we only see them one of them sick near death through most of the episode and the other one we only hear through uh, answering machine messages and telephone calls so uh, she, in a lot of ways, is as ju- is just as lonely um, as he is. Um, Josh, what did you think of this episode, uh, and both on its own and and sort of as a addendum in contrast to the first one? Yeah, I think the the first thing I was struck by was um, this one is much more of an intellectual puzzle. In in some ways, it is. Uh, I, I think the first one has this deep, deep sense of emotional mourning and uh, sadness. Uh, there's an emotional weight to the first film, and this one it it builds that that those emotions much more slowly over the time and over the course of the episode. Um, it it feels in some ways like we're presented with a logic puzzle with a uh, a problem that we have to figure out the right ethical answer to and uh it isn't until the end that we start to really at least for me i didn't start to really connect emotionally with the characters uh until the 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 story continues to progress um at first it's it's just this this debate does she get the abortion to uh because her husband's going to wake up or does she keep the baby and uh, move on with her new lover? Um, and, uh, and I appreciate that, that it's not easy. It's not easy on in, in any instance, she's always wanted to have a child and this she thinks is probably her last chance, but at the same time, she loves her husband and doesn't want to hurt him. And and what's the what's the right choice? What's the the right solution here? And um, yeah, it's 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 an intellectually riveting piece. And then there come these shots that the I, I'm struck by the shot of her twisting the leaves off the plant as she's mm. uh, trying to as she's wrestling with all of her her feelings and all of the emotions and all of the uncertainty. And it's this this moment of despair, and yet as she sits down in the background, we see the plant that she has just destroyed slowly straighten in the background. And uh, I just I am continually amazed by Kieslowski's mastery of image and uh, the the potent symbolism in some of those those very very simple shots and very quiet shots. Yeah, I think. Uh... It, this is a I agree completely with you Josh I think this is more of an intellectually rigorous uh, uh, film you're you're left wondering what you would do or what you would think or trying to find the answer I think the thing that I find to be uh, most fascinating about this piece is it's about a woman trying to it, it's hard because it's a uh, she is <laughs> The fact that she foists upon the doctor in the building the moral obligation of deciding what she should do so she doesn't have to make a choice because the choice she can't 
she has come to a conclusion that there it is a it is a lose lose proposition, and so she cannot make a decision uh, based off of her feelings and thoughts. So she wants to have one thing be once removed and have the doctor make the decision by telling her is he going to live or die because then that makes the decision for her. Um, I find that to be absolutely fascinating because you know you're thinking she's thinking this is a person that is going to be scientific and object and uh you know completely uh objective in his choice because it's going to be based upon facts and data but she isn't looking at him as a person um because he has a history as well he has lost he has lost his family he has lost his wife he has lost his children he has lost his father all because of uh, all due to the war he has lost everyone and so the idea of him uh condemning more life to be lost or you know obvious you know it's it's such a hard she's not taking into consideration because she doesn't see him as a person she just sees him as this uh person of science and it's funny because you know you get that because when he's when they have their first interaction she says do you know me and he says yeah you're that girl that ran over my dog a couple years ago and then at the end of that introduction she says i should have ran over you too and (laughs) instead which you know once again she's not seeing him as a person she's just seeing him as this as a means to an end please give me the answer i'm looking for which is uh, which is kind of interesting because if we want to take it out of the intellectual realm and look at it as a woman praying and figuring out what the answer should wanting an answer to come for as a sign, it is it's the kind of the same it's the same kind of thing where this is where Kislowski the easy uh, what commandment is tied to which episode idea kind of falters because. So many of these, you can add any one of those Ten Commandments to in a certain respect and have and, and they're interchangeable. Uh, I think this is number two. Uh, I've read in one book that this is about bearing false witness because the doctor lies at the end uh, to the woman. But I've also read that this is uh, based on uh, uh, number two in the in the commandments, which is uh, you should not take the Lord's name in vain, which... I don't know how that... That's what it was originally tied to by the um, promotion office that uh, that when when critics and uh, writers were asking Kieślowski what the specific commandment was for each episode, they sent out a list. I don't know how, necessarily how much that was approved by Kieślowski himself, um, but that was the specific one that this was tied to. And I think it comes from the fact that he swears that the, uh, husband is not going to recover. And so she should, uh, not have the abortion. Uh, so he's, he's basically didn't, you know, it's not the, it's not a lie as much as that he's, he's invoking God in uh, in the sense that he Mm. shouldn't have. Um, Although it is interesting and I was going to hold off on this, but I think it's kind of a fundamental question about this episode. So in, in cancer, uh, if you are going to be cured of cancer, um, your cancer is in regression. Um, When they, when he asks, uh, the uh and is it's the angel of fate right who's examining the uh 
the slides making the decision mm. or is he just in the background yeah he's just in the he's background. just in the background, yeah, he's in the background. Right. so the, so this this student um he asks him so what you know what do you think of these slides and he says progression which means that the cancer is getting worse if it's not cancer you could say that he's progressing he's getting better and mm-hmm. it does seem like the vast majority of what i've read on this episode people take for granted that that scene is implying that or is sort of definitively setting up the idea that the doctor is lying in that last scene in order to save the child uh, is how most people take it um partially because of the loss of his own child uh, during the war um did that did that occur to anybody else or am, am i just uh my crazy. Yeah, I I wasn't sure that he lied uh, when I saw it again. I I think I I'm with you. I feel like there are so many ways to read that that line about progression, and uh, I think that Kishlowski intentionally leaves it uh, vague. Yeah. I think again. I think it it you know we we've we talked about the fact that you can substitute just about any commandment for, uh, for what's going on in, in these episodes. And, and that makes me wonder, you know, as I, as I continue to revisit the Decalogue, whether the, the, the films themselves are not about specific commandments, but about the entirety of this Mm. moral code that we're supposed to be wrestling with, you know, because I do think that you could look at uh, Dorota's uh, uh, infidelity as as a potential yep. part of that yep. you can look at this idea of is is uh the abortion is that taking a life is uh the doctor lying is it hi- that he's uh invoking the name of the lord and swearing that he's going to die you know there there are so many so many ethical conundrums within this one episode that uh i think kislowski is such a great filmmaker that he, he never he never leaves it leaves it to be just one thing no, it's, it's not, not simple yeah yeah it, it it forces you to wrestle and to me that's what i want from my art you know i i am mm-hmm. a person of faith i work for a church um my father is a pastor i've grown up in a religious community all my life but to me the richest experiences that i have with my faith are when i have to wrestle with it mm-hmm. when it's not just a um give me the answers and uh and i'll check all the boxes and feel good about myself uh that is is one of the emptiest and shallowest uh, ways to approach faith, and I think that films uh, like the films Kishlowski makes uh, are ones that force me to to wrestle with what I believe and uh, with with what I what I know about what it means to be human and what it means to be a person of faith, operating in a world where there are no easy solutions, there are never easy answers. Uh, we're we're consistently wrestling with what is the good and what is the right and what is the just thing, and. Uh, so this film, you know, it, it was one that I hadn't really, uh, that I hadn't really resonated with. I didn't really latch on to the first time I saw the Decalogue, but, 
as I've been pondering it since and as we're in conversation, it leaves me really excited because there's so much here. There's so much to pull out and so much for me to think about and apply to my own life and my own experiences. Yeah, I think this is where uh, that line that I was uh, talking about at the beginning about uh, Kishlowski talking about how too many freedoms then become the thing that is oppressive. And so like you're talking about how the mo- the best times that you've had with your faith is when you have to wrestle with it. It's that same thing of having so many now that we are no longer being subject to being told what to do all the time, having all this open endedness, it really allows you to have these quandaries and these moments of doubt and this idea of wrestling with a potential future and what you what you can and can't be now because that was something that was never uh, allowed for them at at a certain point and so having this woman be stuck between uh, three men deciding her fate is also kind of a uh, you know it's this she she's wrestling with what to do and this doctor is wrestling with what to do and everyone you know doesn't know what to do like the uh the person that she's uh, seeing on the side, uh, you know, he wants her to be with her and they want to have the baby. And he says, she says, I'm having the abortion. And he's, you know, he's also like wrestling with what to do. And the, and, and the husband that's, uh, that's, uh, in the hospital, he's also, you know, the first time we see his eyes are closed. She comes in to visit. As soon as she leaves, he opens his eyes. So now we're also, I'm also led to believe like, what, it, what is he suffering from? What is it? And is he willfully kind of, you know, removing himself from this moment uh, in their lives until he, you know, he's come to his own conclusion? Is his sickness something that is more psychosomatic than an actual, like, super illness? But, I mean, I know we have those slides and that stuff to kind of... uh, help with the you know is it a is it a cancer is it progression is his progression that he's progressing to be better like you're saying matt like what is what is the definition of that or is it lost in translation in terms of talking from a polish medical to uh english translation is there something that we're missing in the translation um Mm -hmm. but you know that fact that you know every time she leaves the room he kind of opens his eyes for a bit and he's watching just time pass uh, you know, there's lots of symbolism in this as well. The water and containers for water, glass again. Um, you know, it's it. Uh, I assume it's going to be. I hope it's going to be a continuous uh, uh, symbol throughout the course of this. And you know, you can always use the containers and the glass as you know that idea of a vessel. Us, us as humans, as vessels that contain all these emotions and these feelings and these thoughts. And sometimes we break and we can't control them anymore and they come unleashed. Or sometimes we're frozen inside because we can't progress more and we need to thaw out emotionally or physically in our growth before we can move forward in life. And it's it's really interesting how much he is just layering in every single episode about just these this human drama and it's uh yeah it's yeah fantastic and her her character i think definitely recalls um ursula in no end as well yeah um, yeah just and 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 the water uh, and container aspect too um you know the the glasses um frequently appeared in that film as well um yeah. the actually the dog in uh in one also reminded me of the dog from no end. Um, 
it's sort of a uh, kind of spiritual omen to a certain degree like almost like a like a uh, um what's the three-headed dog uh cerebus yeah, cerberus yeah yeah sort of like a uh a marker of the uh of more sinister or or spiritual things um but yeah i mean the, her her character is is so is struggling so much uh with this choice that she is yeah. making and and it's an interesting idea like her unwillingness to make the choice is true but in a sense she is putting her hands uh, her her faith in the hands of science uh to the mm-hmm. same degree that the father is in the first episode because she is unable to make this decision um and so she's not saying to the doctor um, you have to tell me whether it's right or wrong for me to have an abortion, or you have to tell me whether I need to tell my husband, uh, to have this baby or not. Um, she's saying, she's asking him to use his scientific knowledge to save her. And he's unable at first, he's unwilling to do so. Um, but ultimately he's unable to do so. Uh, so from that perspective, you know, they're kind of linked in that way. Yeah, that that's really interesting to think through. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection and in in some ways the the doctor in this episode is is a little more like the ant uh in the first episode. He he may not uh have the 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 deep faith that that Arena has, but he's unwilling to give a definitive answer until the end of the the film. He's unwilling to uh, to say that to say yes, he's going to die or yes, he's going to right. live because he's seen he, miracles, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and I think that to me, it just I I just don't I don't know that he lies to her at the end. Yeah. I don't think that is 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 what's going on here. I think that's much too simple a reading, and I think that it it ignores the mystery that Kieślowski seems to really be embracing throughout uh, this, the second half of his career from blind chance on. And, uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think that, that it gives too pat an answer if the doctor is, is willfully lying to her. Did anybody else get the feeling that, that the husband at the end may know that he's not the father. Yeah. I got that sense that it's a possibility as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do as well. I think, I think part of his struggle, uh, you know, that what represents that bee climbing out of the, uh, out of that, you know, out of that jar of jam, you know, representing him climbing out of his, out of his stupor, out of his sickness is the realization that, you know, what they wanted is a family. What they what he wanted is to have a family, and he couldn't. And now, now that there's the possibility of it, it's something that he's, you know, he's embracing. He wants to embrace. I mean, that's the thing. Like this episode ends joyfully. She is smiling and playing her music, and we are bearing witness to her playing in that symphony. And 
you assume that you know she has chosen chosen to keep the child and but because she's also back on the road with the orchestra which is where her boyfriend is as well and the and we are in the place of the doctor who wants to go and see her and you know it's you know and they have that conversation when when the man wakes up and goes and speaks to the doctor and he says that line do you know what it's like to have a child and you know the doctor's like yes yes i do and you know so that's why when i say when i say he's when i say he's lying about the fact that the dad's gonna die i think it's not so much as a lie of trying to get to an end i mean everyone dies and so he's also telling the truth yes we're all dying you know it's all no matter what you know i'm not lying everyone dies we're all gonna die but i think he's he also he also knows that life sometimes is the is is a more positive answer for yeah. what's going on and you know having something to live for we just had a movie in which we lost that thing to live for in a child in episode one and then we go to uh story two and we're wrestling with this concept again of you know what's it like to be without this child in our lives and we have a father who has lost both of his children and there's a hole in his life and he sees the potential of another family having a hole in their life and you know i don't you know it's weird it's not you know there's this uh the fact that the girl the woman uh the fact that uh dorota is uh is putting her faith in other people to help make the decision is a kind of a, a weird subject to discuss in this day and age like the the you know her choice kind of thing is is a you know is debating right now we have all kinds of you know right. different states and stuff like that uh talking about how to govern uh you know a woman's body and that's hard and then to have a movie in which a woman is has the choice to make and can choose what she wants to do uh you know trying to please two men into like i love this one but i'm not gonna have the baby if this one stays alive and i love this one but i can't have a it's 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 a it's a sticky subject it's it's hard to kind of discuss this without these weird uh moral gray areas that uh you know i'm now wrestling with like oh he's making the right decision because he he wants the baby to live but at the same time hey that's not my choice that's her choice to make and i have no i have no i have no say in the matter so it's also weird that she's asking for this kind of and yeah. and the fact that she isn't like matt you said she isn't saying should i have this abortion she's just saying hey just tell me if he's going to live right. or die cuz then all the other choices are made for me it's easy yeah yeah but, yeah you know it you know but you're as a doctor your job is to is to promote life and to you know at the best of your ability keep keep someone alive and not to make those hard decisions uh you know you're always wanting to do that and so to see everything falling apart and to see this miracle happening and him not being able to explain it properly but also realizing that you know this woman's happiness like you can see that she wants this child like this is what she wants but out of obligation she's going to terminate the child yeah. because she wants to make the other party happy but she, they're not talking you know there's no there's no ability to have the conversation of is would this make you happy if i kept the child because this is what you truly wanted as well but we haven't been able to have a child together like it's, yeah oh, it's but so I, I don't think i don't get the sense that the lover wants the child um 
my my impression of that conversation was that he was not he did not want her to get an abortion because he felt like that was going to be the end of their relationship he wanted to continue mm. the relationship yeah. but he didn't necessarily want to have a child no i can i can i i, I saw it as just like it was more of a masculine i want I, I don't want you to make that, you know, I want to be a part of the decision kind of thing. I didn't take it as a, he actually wants to have a child. I think, yeah. he, I think the other thing is, is the doctor has the, the doctor has the, uh, the doctor has the knowledge of time and of being older and realizing that lots of things are fleeting and this passionate romance could easily be something just due out of necessity sure. because if your husband is climbing mountains all the time and taking his life into his own hands and is not around and you're off into another place and this man is making you feel special because he's doting upon you and making you, you know, come to life again in terms sexually or physically, um, you know, that is a fleeting thing. The the other aspect, which is what why she stays true to her husband, right. who is, safe and secure, is safe and secure yeah. is because, you know, that is something that is has been built upon for a while longer. It's a and he recognizes that also, I think, as the doctor, he recognizes that, you know, these two things are not the same, whether she likes to think they are or not. What do you what about the element of the war, you know, that that the war comes up in this episode um there is uh in the background uh as the the doctor uh makes some coffee there's uh the sounds of a, a radio broadcast of world news and they're really bouncing all over the map it's like in greece and then turning to venezuela um, and he's listening to it in English. Yes, that's true as well. Yeah, I hadn't even mm-hmm. put that together. <laughs> that's that's like the he's, he's that's the American he's, brain there. I'm like, oh, yeah. of course it's in English. It's the radio. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, and and then I I get you know I think you get a much stronger sense of the class divide between these two characters here, and and also her worldliness, like her the fact that she's uh, a traveler, you know, uh, and that the the uh, her lover is is away all the time um this 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 movie feels this episode feels a lot more like it's it's got it's certainly not political by any stretch of the imagination but it has a bit more of an awareness of the world around it that it takes place mm-hmm. in as opposed to the first episode which, which was uh, much more contained and internal do you guys agree with that assessment yeah, definitely. I think the the first film feels in some ways almost like a parable. Hmm. Um, it It's one of those things, stories that could be transplanted to any culture, any time period almost, as long as uh, we're looking at kind of the, the, the divide between intellect and mystery. And this definitely feels grounded in a specific place and time. We had to have the Doctor be old enough to be removed from the war and to have to really be to really have suffered those losses uh but also looking towards uh the future as well and and i think that it points towards the the films of kishlowski's that will take place in other countries and that will be set in the larger kind of european community uh so yeah i think it's i think it's a really fascinating 
fascinating juxtaposition here that um, that we get Dorota who who does travel who uh, her husband goes out mountain climbing around the world yeah. there is a, a a sense that that uh, there are freedoms and there are um, there are avenues now open to uh, the people of Poland and even though they live in the same Soviet apartment block uh, it it contains uh, just a multitude of experiences and classes and people. What about the um, aesthetics of this episode in comparison to the first one, Travis, do you uh, have any thoughts on the differences in cinematography? I mean, for me, this second episode feels much looser and more lyrical and poetic than the first, uh, despite the many, kind of layered thematic elements and and the the nonlinear structure uh to a certain degree of that first episode this feels a little uh, a little bit more artsy fartsy i guess i'll say what do you well, think yeah the, the the first one the first one was very formal in its presentation i mean it's yeah. every shot every shot is using like a depth of field to compose like multiple layers within the frame where this one felt more like you know european art house like there is yeah. these 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 uh, you know strong blues for night and very uh dramatic dramatic angles and you know when she's pushing the glass the uh, glass breaking is very very artistic and it's not realistic yeah. at all mm-hmm. um yeah i just and, watched stalker know, uh last oh, yeah. night again so yeah the <laughs> glass is falling off a table is a uh, is an old standby <laughs> <laughs> but no it is it's very different i uh, think uh, Edvard uh, Klasinski shot this one. The other one was shot by Vyslav. Uh, uh, oh man, I can't pronounce this guy's last name. Zort. Zort. Yeah. Dort. Stort. Yeah, I'm just butchering that. It's probably Woods. Yeah. Yeah. His last name is Wart, and that's just how it's pronounced. But no, it does have that feel. And talking about. And, and you can see visually the class divide as well. Like you can see that there is a, uh, a class, uh, you know, you have the older doctor who's living simply like, like, you know, from, from war times, from harder times, everything is very small, compact within his apartment. You know, he's drinking milk from the bottle, which is nothing more than saying I'm super alone. Um, yeah. It kind of reminded me of the judge in red as well. I got, yeah. 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 yeah, like yeah. That, that, that like just, isolation you know he only talks to his um his cleaning lady yeah and then you go upstairs and you're in her i assume it's upstairs i'm just making that assumption but uh she says yeah that she's upstairs yeah all right yeah you make you go upstairs to her apartment and she's got a hi-fi system and all of her clothes that she's wearing are like these european fashion trend cuts you know she has a when she goes to meet uh yeah no her lover's assistant who's there to collect music and ask yeah. if she's coming back on tour or whatever uh you know she's wearing a really dramatically cut european dress with big shoulders and you know just the fashion in it is a little more we are now seeing fashion for the first time in any of his films everything else has been that drab uh communist uh yeah. you know pretty utilitarian we're getting, yeah, yeah we're getting influences from the outside in this and you know the fact that she's traveling the world also uh you know brings forth to that idea um but yeah visually they're they're 
they're totally different, but at the same time, uh, they're aesthetically different, but at the same time, they still carry that melancholic tone and they still carry some uh, important uh, symbols that uh, that they're, you know, injecting in the film. Yeah. Um, I think that's where, you know, Kishlowski comes in to keep things going, but allowing the cinematographer to kind of... I'm looking forward to seeing more of the films to see how far or how different yeah. uh, they go in terms of cinematography. But between these two here, one felt a lot more formal and composed, and the other one felt a lot uh, more loose, but still aesthetically pleasing. Well, and, and I'll say that... Uh... You know, when I have, I've only had time to do the some of the basic research on this, and I had not read that point that it was different cinematographers for each episode. And while I can definitely see a difference there, uh, it's really fascinating to to hear from you, Travis, the some of those techniques that you're noticing because I was so focused on the symbolism and yeah. so focused on the narrative that it didn't even occur to me that these might have been shot by different people because uh, there still is such a unity in the, the mm -hmm. pieces. And, uh, you know, uh, I find that really remarkable. But as you point out those differences, suddenly it 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 makes so much more sense as to why there is that different feeling and that different tone and that different, um, uh, just that different aesthetic that, yeah. um, that really, really works here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I, when I was watching the, after watching the first episode and watching the second one, the, the water dropping onto the railing was yeah. kind of a shock to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, so it's such an, a, a different, uh, you know, it's kind of, I don't recall a POV shot in the first episode, but I certainly don't recall any um, moments where it really felt like, um, you know, we're going to something that has sort of a deeper metaphoric drive at what we're, and, and sort of um, an internal emotional process being represented visually that that aspect of it, there are some elements in that of that in the first uh, film, uh, you know, the, the, the close, I guess it is a POV at the beginning of the, of the TV um, and things yeah. like that. But like no, nothing to that degree that was so separate from the literal uh, narrative that's being portrayed uh, visually uh, in the first episode. So that aspect yeah. of it, as that built throughout this episode, it just felt, um, very different from from what had come before. Yeah, the first episode is compositionally dense. Like, there's so much information packed within the frame, whereas in this episode, they're compositionally sparse. So I totally you're left agree. With the yeah. one thing to think about, and then like this stuff, the close-ups, the inserts, uh, the close-ups, the uh, POV that you're talking about, everything looks so sexy. Like that, I mean, it's it's a yeah. weird it's a weird term to use, but I mean that water it's glinting and yeah. it's viscous, and there's the 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 highlight of it is just sparkling. That bee struggling out of the jam, yeah. like it is glowing. No, it it's is... very it's very Tarkovsky actually. Mm -hmm. Like the, mm. you know, the to extend that that comparison, like there is something very uh, fetishistic about the gaze here that goes beyond you know anything that is presented in the more conventional. Uh, first episode yeah nope 
Yeah. Um, the one, the one, the one other thing uh, I wanted to talk about in comparison between the two was was the building. Obviously, this is going to come up more frequently as we go through these episodes. But just the way that this building was presented, these are um, this is an apartment uh, project that was built, uh, I believe, in the '60s uh, or late '50s. It's basically um, a an example of sort of the brutalist architecture that was. Uh, spreading across the globe at that time, um, but was uh, a government project that was kind of heralded as sort of a modern presentation of, uh, you know, fa- uh, forward-facing Poland. Um, and getting uh, a slot in one of these apartment buildings was considered uh, to be sort of a, a, a lucky uh, sort of high status, uh, achievement for people in the sixties, uh, and early seventies. Um, they were, a lot of them were built in the area of, uh, in, in areas of Warsaw that were destroyed, uh, during world war two. Um, by the eighties, however, I think the, the glow had, uh, had worn off. And, uh, I think like housing projects in, America, everybody woke up to the realization that this was perhaps not the ideal living situation for people. Um, and uh, there is uh, sort of a, a dour feel, uh, which I think is, is you know, not new to Kieślowski's films. But um, what, do you, what do you guys think of the presentation of this building and, and, and just generally the concept of, of uh, structuring this uh, series around characters that that live within these uh, complexes. Josh, uh, yeah, I think it provides a really useful and convenient um, reason to be telling these stories uh, as part of one work. I think it it links them all, and I know that characters from one will show up in other episodes uh, in in very brief uh, tangential ways, uh, and so I think it 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 creates that sense of a larger world and a larger community. You know, we we talked about how the first episode felt really self-contained because we haven't seen any of the other stories yet, and so we don't know if we're gonna meet these characters again uh and uh and i think it does allow for a a sense of um the connections i think it much like the three colors trilogy ends with the the shot of don't do it uh, oh yes sorry sorry yes Uh, (laughs) but but much like the the way the three colors trilogy finds connections between its characters (laughs) i think that um uh I think that setting it in one location provides a convenient way of doing that, and uh, I, I do think it it like you were you were saying you know her apartment Dorota's apartment is so lush and so uh, it's shot in in this this really kind of uh, it looks it looks almost decadent compared to the doctor's apartment uh, compared to uh, Kristav and Pavel's yeah. apartment in the earlier episode. Um, and and so I, I think we're we're left with the sense that we're going to be able to experience the entirety of Polish experience within this one block within this one building, and uh, uh, yeah, it it is though it it looms it looms in the frame. It's 
very it's it's an ugly building it is oppress- uh, oppressive i think is definitely a word that can yeah, be applied to the design yeah yeah, yeah they're all brutalist architecture yeah. it's oppressive looking it's but there's a that's very true it's a fascination with it too i mean it's uh mm-hmm. i like the idea of it as as a microcosm of all of poland within this block i think that's i think it's a good it's a good theme because like you know reading reading about him talking about the process of trying to figure out how to tell these stories uh you know they could have been done many different ways and but putting them all together here in this area uh does ground it in a sense of reality like these are these are the stories of the people around you uh, i think he has a quote somewhere i can't i think it's on the kishlowski on kishlowski book where he says every person has an interesting story uh hidden secret or you know yeah. drama that we could easily dramatize and make into a movie and it would be very interesting. And that's the other thing that I like, you know, about these two stories so far is they are very just personal and just very specific stories about one person and one, one thing that has happened in their lives, one choice. Um, and it's, you know, the fact that all these things are happening in every one of those windows at that moment at the same time, all these other people are living lives and having their own stories or having their own emotions and thoughts is an interesting uh, is an interesting exercise. And I, I am not a person that likes an anthology film. Like most anthology films usually fall flat. Uh, but because I think Kieślowski is directing each one of them, they tie together nicely. I think every time I've seen some sort of anthology film, like, you know, New York Stories is the one that comes to mind right away. There's obviously a very strong piece in there, and there's a very weak piece in there, and then there's an okay piece in there. Right. (laughs) You know, and they've done that a lot. A lot of those anthologies, Love and Anger is another one. But uh, having this be, you know, thinking of this as an anthology film, which is what it was going to intended to be, an anthology series, um, having a singular voice to tell the stories really helps make this anthology uh work together thematically and having that be the center point is is i think is a very strong choice yeah it's much more that's key yeah 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 similar to the the last cohen movie um the battle of buster shrugs like that if you just made six western shorts from six western some from six current directors it wouldn't nearly have the same thematic unity that 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 piece does um yeah Yeah. i mean i think for the the buildings uh the building in this film reminds me a lot of edward yang's work around the same time and afterwards his films are interesting because they're almost the the other side of um this story because this is a building that is basically at the the twilight of its uh, era um this is the we're coming up on the end of the soviet union and the soviet bloc um poland would become a democracy a couple of years later um this presentation is of uh the uh, abandoned or uh failed promise of the future of communist poland and what these characters are struggling with to a certain degree is the fallout of those um, moral and ethical choices that were made uh, and what they uh, are literally living inside of. Um, 
And whereas in Yang's films, the economic explosion in Taiwan in the in the eighties and nineties um, was uh, a a moment uh, for the promise of economic expansion and um, globalization to begin in a place that had been struggling to uh, develop its own identity since it was um, sort of. I don't want to say created, but um, since they invaded and murdered all of the people who used to live there, sorry, I don't mean to laugh at uh, genocide, but uh, you know, I mean the the uh, the 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 shift in Taiwan um, at that point was was a shift to uh, that was intended to be a brighter future, but that brings with it its own moral complications and choices and reckoning with the past to a certain degree. Um, and your own belief system, like how you see yourself in the world and the world around you. And I think Kieślowski is doing the same thing here, but with his typical kind of um, uh, pessimism and, uh, and, and struggle to, uh, to flip that into humanity at the very least, if not optimism moving forward, um, we're getting to experience the think the soul of Poland struggling with its identity, um, even as the stories that he's telling are universal. That's very well put. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me think that, you know, in all of his efforts to, uh, remove politics or to move away from political subject matter, there's, there's no way to actually, to actually do that. The, Mm -hmm the the personal here is is grounded in what came before and uh uh yeah it makes me really eager to continue my revisit of the decalogue and to dig into uh the other the other chapters and see how he continues to explore these themes yeah the personal is political the political is personal no i i agree i think i I think i said in previous episodes it's when he's not being overtly political is when the politics of the films uh, are able to do what they're supposed to do, which is to help uh, help a, help explain uh, character choices, character traits, and character reasoning. Which I think is you can't these characters can't exist without their past, and the past is a very political turmoil uh, throughout that country. So, well, so normally on these episodes uh, we. Uh, rank them i i think we're gonna wait to do the whole uh decalogue travis and then worry about that later so Uh we're gonna pass up on that but uh are we gonna are we gonna rank each episode i don't know are we going to we're gonna find out should we (laughs) hollywood stars what do they know let's find out yeah um but uh but i i don't i don't want to let uh josh uh i don't want to 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 have Josh not get the opportunity to let us know about his uh, favorite of the um, Kieślowski films that he's seen. Do you have a favorite Kieślowski uh, film, and uh, where does Decalogue figure into uh, your sentiments? Yeah, you know, um, Blue is still, I think, my all-time favorite uh, Kieślowski film. Um, there's one shot in that film that moved me to tears, 
and it's that thing that I always I look for in Kislowski, the way he captures ordinary things and imbues them with so much emotion. And uh, Blue does that for me. I think it's uh, hands down my favorite of them. And Decalogue as a whole uh, is number two for me. I think that it is a monumental work uh, that uh, there's just so much packed into each and every episode and uh there's so much to wrestle with and uh i love that i want my i want my art to to make me explore uh my own thoughts and perceptions and uh uh, notions about the world um i have one i have one last question for you uh, about about decalogue because you uh, are a spiritual person a religious person um and i think we'll probably have a couple more of you people on uh, on these decalogue episodes, <laughs> you people, wow. um, the gauntlet. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you, kind of, if you engage with this series uh, as a not necessarily religious text, but a text uh, about religion, and if you know how you feel about the films in regard to your faith. You know, I. I honestly relate to a lot of films uh, through my religious sure. experience, uh, and, and I think that this is no different than that. I think that while it has some explicit parallels and it has some explicit um, explicit connections to faith and to religion, uh, and I think that there are some filmmakers that do that more than others, uh, I think that, it, that honestly for me... Uh, as I explore my faith and as I explore my religion, I'm, I'm also exploring what does it mean to be human? Um, and, uh, that's a part of it and, and embracing the mystery and embracing the uncertainty and, uh, being okay with doubt. Uh, those are those, those elements, uh, that, uh, I find in Kieślowski's work that, uh, help me, wrestle with my own faith and help me explore my own faith. So yeah, I definitely, um, explore these films, uh, from a, uh, a place of my own religious, uh, faith and my own, um, background. But at the same time, I don't feel like it's that different from any of the other great artists, uh, uh, the great filmmakers, uh, who are asking similar questions, um, even if they're not explicit. I think that when we ask what it means to be human, I think that uh, there's always room for for me anyway to uh, explore my faith in the midst of that. Well put. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, kicking off this mini series within our series uh, on uh, on Decalogue. Uh, We have been building up to this uh, for the whole season, so... um, it was a pleasure to have you come on and, and start it off with us. Yeah, thank you very well, thanks. much, Josh. Thank you. This has been a, a pleasure, and uh, uh, it's been a real treat to be a part of this conversation. So next time we will be uh, continuing this uh, experience of Decalogue with uh, episodes three and four. We will have uh, another guest on for that. And um, yeah, well, onward and upward, Travis. I guess so. We're going to hit the button in that elevator and just uh, see what floor we land yeah. on next time. <laughs> we, are the, we are the pigeons uh, flying through the wind, uh, wondering which ledge we will land on next. And with that, we're complete for another week.